As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Welcome back to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, I want to remind you about our book competition. To be in with a chance to win a copy of Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. Quick shout out to some of our book winners so far, including Matt, John, Jame, Tyler, Brenda and Scott. If you want to join these guys in getting yourself a copy of Alistair's book, this is your last chance to do so. So sign up now at the link below. But now for today's show. In the final episode of this series, we take a look at the legacy and lasting impact of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis remarked to Walter Hooper that he expected to be forgotten within five years of his death. Why do you think that, well, why do you think Lewis thought that? And then why do you think that wasn't the case? Well, Lewis obviously was a literary scholar and was perfectly aware that very often, you know, people have their day, they they peak, they, they reach a crescendo at a certain point in their lives. And then um, basically they're forgotten. That's just the way it is. And Lewis, I think, felt that he'd been very successful in, in engaging, for example, the cultural mood of the 1940s speaking into a wartime context, and then, of course, caught the mood of the 1950s. But he was aware that culture was changing and that, in effect, he might not be the right person to speak to an unknown future. I think Lewis just felt, well, you know, I've had my day. It's been fun. It's been good. But that's it. End of. Give me five years and I'll be forgotten. Now, how do you think someone who was quite clearly so culturally relevant to his own generation, how has he had this lasting appeal to, to, you know, multiple generations after his own that really are not culturally in, in the same place as his? It's a very interesting question. I, I think there are a number of things we can point to. One of them is that actually Lewis seems to bridge the gap between what we might call the modern and postmodern mindsets. You know, in other words, um, a kind of way of thinking which prioritizes reason and another which prioritizes the imagination and the emotions and really appreciates the importance of images and stories. And Lewis has this remarkable and quite unusual ability to kind of way bring together stories and uh, imaginative interplay and rational analysis. So you know, the Narnia Chronicles might be pitched more at a level of the imagination, mere Christianity more at a level of the rational, but actually both of them involve imagination and reason. And maybe Lewis, without realizing what was happening, was in effect able to bridge that gap between a modern and postmodern generation. In other words, the children of the people who read him during the 1940s would be able to 
pick him up in the 1960s and say, hey, this makes sense. Now, Lewis is generally regarded with fairly high esteem among American evangelicals, but that wasn't always the case, was it? No, it's not. And that's that's a remarkable transformation. Um, Most American evangelicals of the late 50s, for example, tend to see Lewis as um, slightly unusual, not of great significance, not being someone who resonated with their chief concerns, and someone who really belonged to a different cultural world. So, in effect, um, Lewis was not naturally seen as being relevant to the American context at all. There were some studies on Lewis by people like Chad Walsh, but Lewis tended, I think, to be seen as an Episcopalian writer, which is always bad news, you know, um, and didn't really resonate very much with the very big American evangelical constituency. Obviously, all of that changed, and uh, I think many people would now find it very, very strange to be told that actually initially evangelicals did not rate Lewis at all. So what did change then? Why did he suddenly become, you know, held in much higher esteem among American evangelicals? Was there something significant that happened? I think that Lewis came to be seen as a very credible upholder of Christian orthodoxy. Um, And obviously, one of the points about Lewis is he doesn't really reference the Bible very much. I mean, we have the reflections on the Psalms, but Lewis tends to be someone who, who in effect is thinking about where Scripture is pointing rather than Scripture itself. And I think many evangelicals began to realize they could use Lewis very profitably to, in effect, supplement their biblical foundations. In other words, their ideas were based on the Bible, but Lewis, in effect, gave them a scaffolding they could erect on that to engage the imagination, not simply the reason, also to do some very significant things apologetically, And also, I think we just have to say in terms of level of spirituality with what Lewis had provided them. So I think what we see here is um, a a shift amongst evangelical leaders. But I think more important is um, the generation below the American evangelical leaders of the 1960s, who in effect were attending American evangelical churches and feeling that the sermons were a little bit clinical and dry and did not appeal to the imaginations. And certainly... My own conversation with many American undergraduates um, in the 1990s and 1980s um, suggests that many American evangelical teenagers um, valued the preaching they were getting, but it did seem to be rather, rather unimaginative and read Lewis because he supplemented and enriched the really rather rational basis they were being given for their faith in these sermons. And gradually, these people became church leaders, and so they brought their love of Lewis with them to their new roles. So if you like, Lewis has been remarkably successful in capturing the imaginations of the generation after he died. And that, I think, is, is quite unusual, but certainly I don't think anybody really predicted this would have happened. Now, do you think it's predominantly Lewis's fiction or his non-fiction which has sort of ensured his longevity, or is it a combination of the two? Is it precisely because there is this reason and imagination, as well as different types of literature that he was writing? Well, that's, that's a really good question. And again, um, I, I can answer that question on the basis of my many conversations with people who come to Lewis. The answer is, uh, Lewis's fiction appeals to one readership, and Lewis's more rational books, like, for example, um, Mere Christianity, seem to uh, appeal to a slightly different readership. What's interesting is, having discovered one genre of Lewis, people tend to progress to the other genres. In other words, they their entry points might be different. For example, um, 
One of the most important events in terms of the American evangelical appreciation of Lewis was, of course, um, the, the famous um, uh, Charles Colson, who, um, in effect, having had a rather bad time as a result of the Watergate scandal, um, re- had Lewis read to him and realized that Lewis was, in effect, speaking to him in a very powerful way in mere Christianity and wanted to know more about him. So he then, of course, went on to read Lewis's more imaginative writings. So we see here a pattern. You come into Lewis by different ways, but when you're in there, you read the lot, and you find just how rich and significant a writer he is. So I think that may be part of the reason why he has become so influential, that in effect, people arrive at Lewis by different routes, but when they're there, they read everything and begin to talk about him to their friends. So we've touched a little bit there about his popularity in America, but why was Lewis so popular in America? Because as we've said in various episodes before, he was writing very much as a Brit in a British context, but clearly has remained popular in America. Why do you think that is? Well, there are several possible reasons. One of them is that uh, many Americans, rightly of course, have a very, very high esteem of Oxford University and see it as being almost mystical. Now, for some reason, I don't understand, and that doesn't really apply to the University of Cambridge, which, of course, is is, is a very good university. Um, uh, but um, for some reason, Oxford has a certain mystique. Both Tolkien and Lewis were Oxford thinkers. And I think that in many ways, that helps understand the sense there's something magical about Lewis. Um, and I think that, that that is part of the appeal. But I think that there has to be more than that, and certainly I think there is. One of them, I think, is just that um, I think Americans, American evangelicals were beginning to become a bit anxious about the very rationalist form of apologetics that they found in uh, writers of the 1960s and began to realize these were not connecting with the culture. Whereas Lewis's approach is very imaginative. It tells stories. It connects up with human feelings. It's able to talk about authenticity, about meaning and so on, rather than intellectual correctness. And I think that actually people began to say that this approach seems to work better, very pragmatic American judgment, uh, than the ones we are used to. So it may well be that many um, Americans actually felt that Lewis was giving them something that that their own people weren't, and felt that Lewis's Oxford credentials really helped them in trying to um, explain why they went to this figure than somebody rather than somebody else. And what I suppose one of the things that Lewis is quite unique in is that he sort of transcends denominations as well as cultures. Why do you think he's been able to do that, to speak to so many different people within different Christian traditions? Well, I think this is a very important question, and I think we need to speak about this in some depth. Lewis does appeal widely. I, I, if I can give an example, um, I had to go to Lithuania uh, a couple of years back to give a talk to the Lithuanian parliament about science and religion, and I hear a talk at the university. And my host said, look, um, you're going to have to arrange the next lecture I'm afraid, on C.S. Lewis because everyone wants to hear you talk about him. So I gave this lecture, um, and afterwards we, we, we were besieged by people who in effect said, Lewis kept our faith alive during the Soviet occupation. In effect, Lewis was a lifeline to our faith, and these guys were a mixture of Lutherans and Catholics. And the point was, irrespective of Lewis being an Anglican, he spoke to them. He he was the guy who helped them keep their faith during that period. And of course, the answer lies in Lewis's 
concept of mere Christianity, which basically is Lewis saying, I am going to talk to you about basic consensual Christianity. I'm not going to talk to you about um, Catholicism or Presbyterianism or Anglicanism. It's what we all have in common. And actually, that immediately bypassed these rather unpleasant denominational debates that very often just get people bogged down and, and hot under the collar. It meant that Lewis could talk about what Christians had in common, which he did very, very effectively. And that certainly, I think, is part of his wide appeal. Lewis is read very widely by um, evangelicals, by Anglicans, by all kinds of Protestants, by Orthodox Christians in Eastern Europe, and by Catholics. And okay, it helps that Lewis had a very, very high regard for G.K. Chesterton, who was a Catholic, and was best friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, who was also a Catholic. But actually, even without that, there is something about Lewis which makes him the property of all Christians, because everyone feels Lewis speaks for them with this idea of mere Christianity, i.e. basic consensual Christianity, which recognizes the need to belong to a denomination, but does not see that as being of absolute importance. What do you think we can learn from Lewis in terms of what he does cross-denominationally? Because it feels like in a lot of the church, both in the UK but also in America as well, there are real divides uh, sort of within denominations and uh, across denominations and culturally and um, politically and all of that. What can we learn from Lewis about this mere Christianity, about sort of sticking to the basics, as it were? Well, Lewis is really saying you need to refocus. You need, in effect, to say... Basic Christianity is what really matters, and you can add things on to that. But what you need to do is avoid division over things that actually are not seen as essential. For example, how you organize a denomination, that sort of thing. And I think what Lewis is really doing is saying, look, let's get back to basic. Let's refocus on what lies at the heart of the Christian faith. That doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything, but it does mean we're being invited to rediscover what we have in common and realize just how important that is. And the problem is that interdenominational rivalry or controversy very often focuses attention on the hot issues, which are hot in the sense of being important for cultural reasons, but not hot in the sense of being essential to the life of faith. Lewis is saying, let's just refocus and get a sense of priority here. We need to be real here and just realize that what we have in common actually is really rather more important than the other issues which divide us. I mean, do you think that was why Lewis was such an effective evangelist and apologist? Because he was sticking to mere Christianity rather than getting sort of bogged down by these interdenominational, cross-denominational issues? I'm sure it is. I mean, Lewis didn't really... Um, focus on this point, but uh, we know he addressed many public speakings, uh, 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 gave many public lectures, and actually those would be to an astonishing variety of audiences, and basically Lewis could speak to these because he was talking about what they had in common, and that, that I think is significant. Uh, there's no problem, I think, about someone like G.K. Chesterton, who is both a, an apologist for Catholicism and an apologist for Christianity, but Lewis is very, very clearly saying what I am doing is providing an apology for basic Christianity, for mere Christianity, for a basic consensual Christianity. And that is what really matters to me. I think as events have proven, it really matters to a lot of other people as well. 
Um, post Lewis's death, we've seen all sorts of societies and clubs um, spring up to sort of celebrate Lewis and, and, and introduce him to the masses. What are some of these key societies? How did they sort of rise up and, and why were they formed, do you think? Well, the most successful societies are based in um, the United States, the C.S. Lewis Society of, for example, um, New York or, or all over the place. Because these, I think, uh, did two things. One is, of course, they, they in effect, brought people together to talk about Lewis. And I, I can certainly say that is really important. But also, they helped people to realize how you could use Lewis. And again, that, that led to a kind of expansion of Lewis's influence, particularly in preaching, but also in writing. I think that, that's very important. But another thing which I think is also very important is the establishment of the Wade Center at Wheaton College in Illinois, which basically brought together um, not just Lewis, but Tolkien and Cheston and Dorothy L. Sayers and others, in effect giving you a, a, an archive resource that would be very, very helpful. And this has meant, of course, that college courses on Lewis are now very widespread. So in effect, uh, you'll find not just the Christian colleges, but right across the educational spectrum, you can learn about Lewis and the Inklings. And again, that, that's a gateway to really uh, opening up um, their significance for apologetics, for spirituality, and of course, very significantly for preaching. So I think we have to say these are really important developments, all of which both witness to Lewis's appeal, but actually significantly consolidate and extend this influence. 60 years after Lewis's death, he's clearly still very popular. Why do you think he still has this incredibly popular appeal? Well, I think it's all down to several things. One is he is writing for every Christian. That's really important. Secondly, he is using very accessible language, very engaging prose um, to, to draw people in and to, in effect, enable them to step inside the Christian faith and understand why it is so exciting and so important. And I think that where many other apologists, in effect, get bogged down in endless argumentation about the rationality of faith, Lewis shows us that this is something that works, that's reasonable, and that transforms our lives. But most importantly of all, from my perspective, Lewis is an atheist who became a Christian, who knows both why he was an atheist in the first place and why he became a Christian, and can speak very powerfully to atheists because of that experience. And Lewis, I think, really is someone who is credentialized to be able to engage an unbelieving culture because he used to be part of it. And he gives us so many tools, rational arguments, narratives, the appeal to the imagination, this deep engagement with human experience and emotion. I mean, there's something in Lewis for everybody. I think that's one of the reasons why he remains so successful. Do you think there is, to a certain extent, a shelf life on how popular Lewis can carry on being? Or do you think he just will have longevity until we stop reading because he will always have an appeal? I think many writers become popular for a season and then fade. And Lewis did not fade, as many expected, including himself, um, after his after his death. Um, will he feed, fade away subsequently? I just don't know. The evidence at the moment is, if that's going to happen, it's not just yet. But I think it's very important um, to, to make sure everyone appreciates not simply why Lewis is so enjoyable, because for Lewis, being enjoyable is really important, but also useful. You can do things with Lewis. 
Uh, Lewis is a preacher's gift, to be honest with you. He's an apologist's uh, right-hand person, you know, because he's so useful. And that, I think, is part of this picture, that Lewis demonstrably is relevant to so many cultural debates. I suppose, in some ways, this is a hard thing to anticipate, but what do you think is the future of C.S. Lewis? I don't think anybody's going to arise who will be the new C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is simply irreplaceable. He is distinct. He's his own person. There isn't anybody who's going to kind of way walk up and say, I can do everything he did. What I think we can say is that Lewis demonstrates the need for somebody who's able to do what he did. And maybe that will continue to be C.S. Lewis's role. Maybe somebody else will arise who can do that or a group of people. I just don't know. But what Lewis is saying very, very clearly is that you need somebody who can articulate clearly, illustrate using narratives, and able to engage with human experience to help them understand why Christianity makes sense and why it's able to utterly transform life. If others can do this, wonderful. But for the moment, Lewis certainly can. So we can certainly use him for the time being at least. Well, Alistair, I'm so sad to say that we've come to the end of our series on your wonderful, wonderful book, C.S. Lewis, A Life, Eccentric Genius, Reluctant Prophet. Now, I feel like we've just sort of scratched the surface of everything that we've been talking about, but I would highly recommend everyone goes and reads this book, 10 years on now, but still so, so relevant. Um, But are there any final thoughts that you would like to leave people with as we conclude our series on C.S. Lewis, sort of snapshot of his life as a whole? Well, I think the important thing about Lewis is to read him. You're welcome to read my biography, which will give you a sense of who this person is and why it's so important. But the important thing is to read him. That's what happened to me. I read him uh, back in the 1970s when I was just beginning in my Christian life. I've stayed with him ever since. I've learned so much from him. I'm not the only one, and there are many listening to me right now who might be able to begin to realize just how important and interesting he is. So that's the key thing. Read Lewis. Alistair, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson, and Professor Alistair McGrath. And don't forget, we're giving you the opportunity to get a free copy of Alistair's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. That's premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book. Thank you for listening and see you next time.